Hello, Division Three football fans. This is an edition of our podcast uh, during which, while Keith and I were recording it, uh, we repeatedly referred to this as maybe the heaviest podcast of the uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast here. Number 275 carries a lot of weight, and I feel that for those of us who are in the majority, right, this is our time to really step back and listen and learn. We have guests who are going to talk pretty frankly and openly about what they have seen in the world, what has uh, their reaction been to the events of the past four weeks, including the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I would just, I would just hope that people who might be inclined to think differently about the current situation in the world, just take a, a couple of, uh, well, not a couple of minutes, not quite a couple of hours to sit down and really listen to what real people have to say about this. I really appreciate it. We, of course, always welcome your feedback. But now, on with the podcast. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys, and this time a lot of guests, talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football and around the world for that matter. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been involved with the site since 1999, and this is the part where, you know, we've been away for a little while, so Keith has to reintroduce himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm Pat's longtime co-host, former player, and uh, general voice of wisdom. Yeah, you'll hear lots of uh, words of wisdom or that voice of wisdom from Keith coming up a little bit later on in this podcast. We've got, uh, you've probably already noticed, we've got a fairly long podcast here for you, um, but it is not, you know, you're not going to hear just me and Keith talk. You're going to hear from Chip Taylor. He's the head football coach at Hamlin University in St. Paul. He's going to talk about his experiences in and around everything going on uh, in and around St. Paul, first around the uh, murder of George Floyd back in May. It was part of the reason why we didn't have a May podcast. It was There was no good way to have a football podcast in that environment, and we don't have as much a football podcast in, that, in, in this environment either. Our second big segment is uh, we've got a roundtable with three current football players in NCAA Division Three: Nick Hayes out of Millsaps, Malcolm Lang out of Wabash, and uh, Cortland's Devin Smith. These guys, well, Keith, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what these guys are talking about? Yeah, I mean, they, uh, they're they members of a, of a generation, I guess, right now who is dealing with uh, uh, or, or, is, or is spearheading uh, America's racial reckoning. And I know, you know, People think maybe that word is being a little overused right now, but um, but it, it really is the moment where people who haven't uh, who have who have previously been able to sort of brush to the side whatever pain is still caused by uh, uh, the long American and, and really worldwide history of uh, of uh, discriminating against people of color. Uh, a lot of it has come to the surface now and people are, are willing to talk about it. And it's certainly a bit um, surprising, but not at all disappointing uh, for most people that, um, that, that George Floyd 
and um, you know the the way he was killed and sort of the the fact that we everyone got to watch it and the the callousness uh, with which it took place that it that it took all of that to happen um, for us to be having this discussion and moment um, and and you know other things of course uh, have been happening beforehand and and, and are, are still happening uh, and and the players we talked to later mentioned a few of those folks but. Um, but that really being the moment that set off this this national uh, discussion, where every part of of um, life, to some degree, has has been touched by it, or at least you you would have to be living under a rock to not realize that we're in this this time where um, the country's already dealing with a, a health crisis and uh, an economic slowdown, if not shutdown. Uh, caused by uh, coronavirus and, and the COVID-19 disease. And then you add on top of that um, what happened with, with George Floyd and, and with uh, some of the other real high profile moments and the, and the national reaction to it, the fact that the reaction wasn't limited to just Minneapolis, um, that, it's, that it's spread to small towns, that, uh, that it then, of course, spawns a, a backlash from people who don't want to hear it or don't want to uh, participate in this in this reckoning, and then um, you know e- everything else that's happened since then. Whether it's um, you know protests that turn violent, pro- the 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 way people want this to be shown to them, I think as um, as as uh, they consume media and 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 uh, you know video and and. Uh, analysis about it. People have um, opinions on whether the peaceful protest is the most important, whether the violence is most important, whether uh, whether it's accurate. Um, and then all of that is is undercut by the fact that social media exists and we can sort of go straight to the source now. So um, it really is a, a remarkable moment in American history. And I know I'm talking for like four minutes in a row, um, but my job uh, every day is uh, is as a journalist. I'm in, for those of you who don't listen all the time. I'm in during the day. I'm an editor uh, at the Washington Post, and so officially, um, I don't, I don't, I can't advocate for any causes or join any um, political party or um, participate in any protests. But we're also because the reason we do that is because um, you know we need to be able to remain. Uh, impartial enough to um, to at least analyze and, and um, take in the news from from multiple uh, directions and um, so I I can't participate in it but we've been so close to it just uh, knee deep in in news pretty much nonstop since the middle of March but uh, it, Memorial Day is when uh, is, is when George Floyd was killed and so that um, that since then, it's been a really, really powerful moment for a lot of people in uh, in American history, and and I know a lot of people would like life to go back to normal, and I think it's probably true that the there is there is going to be no normal because you you have COVID, you have um, I think people who who have never really dealt with race in any meaningful way. Uh, a lot of times, maybe just acknowledging it on the surface now, acknowledging it. And then, you know, the reason you're all listening is because this is a football podcast and we don't know for sure what kind of football season we will have. 
Um, so who knows what normal looks like in a couple of months, in um, six months, nine months, 2021, 2022. But I know there are some people that we'll speak to on this podcast later that hope we never go back to the way it was. As a Minneapolis native, as someone who lives in Minneapolis, I could say, you know, it was impossible to come out of that week and not be changed. I think if you have any objective eyes or any objective ears as to what's going on, I think if you talk about the reckoning, I think I'm one of those people who is, you know, has been, you know, forced to reckon with the fact that these things aren't getting better and they aren't changing. And, you know, this place which I had believed to be a great place to uh, to live. Uh, I went to a, a high school that was as diverse a high school as you could get in Minneapolis as a private school with drawing kids from all over the place. It just is not, none of that, uh, none of uh, what I've believed, none of what I've said in the course of my 47 some years on the planet has been enough. And, you know, I'm just kind of coming to grips with that and figuring out how to Go forward from that, I guess, is kind of what I'm trying to say. And it wasn't very profound, not nearly as profound as what uh, you what you said or what you will say later, I'm sure. But that's uh, kind of what's swirling around in my head. No, I mean, I, uh, first of all, it was unexpected. So um, so it, it is profound in, in a way because um, I wasn't expecting you to say that that you personally have had this um, reckoning because I, I think we talk a lot now in terms of allies and, um, you know, you and I have gotten along for 20 plus years so we sort of see each other as um as allies and maybe in, in a lot of ways po- politically or socially aligned in that we believe some of the same things um but we also live different realities in a lot of ways and always will yeah. and before you can whether you believe the world needs fixing or changing or just a slight adjustment whatever you believe before you can um tackle it you have to kind of acknowledge that, that there's, um, you know, that we don't, we're not all living in this, in the perfect utopia that we wish, uh, that we wish it would be. Yeah. It's like the first step in the 12 step program, right? I've not been a great Ooh. ally. So I, I guess I'm admitting that and I'll try to be a better ally going forward. Uh, also, as far as I know, you have not actually been to the 12 step program. So uh, props for knowing <laughs> the first step. We'll, uh, we'll come back to the 12-step program some other time. Maybe we'll need something to wean us off of Division Three football here over the course of the next few months because we don't know, as uh, Keith said, you know, we had a like a fully COVID podcast, the previous couple of podcasts. Um, we're going to have a, a different kind of podcast this time around. But, you know, in terms of like what the COVID news is, it is sounding like, well, let's start with what we know for sure. Bowdoin College in Maine has announced that it is not going to participate in any fall sports whatsoever. That's what we know as of tonight, and this is uh, June 24th. Uh, This podcast won't drop until the 26th, so who knows? We may see, I think we'll definitely see other NESCAC schools follow suit um, before... Maybe before you guys even hear this podcast, uh, certainly I would think before we get to the time where camps would open because, you know, these schools moved somewhat in sync in March in shutting down the spring. There's a little bit of a longer lag time, so they don't have to all shut down like in the course of 24 or 48 hours. And I suspect some of those things will happen. We've seen lots of conferences come out and state various ways in which they expect to compete 
in the fall. One of them is the Skyac, in which uh, they expect uh, to see only conference games if they compete at all. So you know, there's a whole slate of non-conference games off the board. Like if you are looking at the schedule pages on our site, um, if I could just put a big asterisk over all of them, we have no idea how many of the 247 programs will field teams in the fall. We have no idea who will play non-conference games. We have no idea who will play the minimum five games necessary to qualify for the NCAA playoffs. We just don't know. And when we know, we'll tell you more. But right now, it's it's all way up in the air. Yeah, and I, I think the really ominous thing is if you read the, the recent reports from uh, – University of Texas, LSU, Clemson, schools like that where, you know, 15 to 20 players are testing positive um, for the for the virus. Um, it pretty it pretty much su- suggests that you can't run a uh, football program safely. Right. If you if if you believe that's what those numbers say, then it has to be hard to imagine how you can run a football season. And while LSU and Clemson and Texas have enormous pressure to um, entertain their entire states and get life feeling normal again and make a ton of money for the university, uh, Bowdoin and uh, Cal Lutheran and you know whoever else is uh, making making their decisions, um, you know anyone across Division three, from uh, you know from from Rose Holman to to. Uh, Pacific Lutheran, right? They don't. We, they don't have those kind of pressures. We don't have to put our players at risk, and so the only way you're going to have a season played is if colleges feel like they're not putting players at any more risk by playing football than they would be um, doing whatever else they'd be doing at the same time. And uh, that's a tough calculation to make, knowing what we know as of June 24th. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll talk with a coach that has heard some of these calculations being made. That is an interview that is probably a week and a half to two weeks older than the rest of this podcast. So keep that in mind because everything changes so quickly. Something else that might change before you guys get to hear this podcast as well is Mike Maynard, the head coach at Redlands, has been on the hot seat because he made a tweet that at best could be said was ill-advised um you know uh responding to somebody who tweeted i'm just gonna get the very basic details here responding to someone who tweeted a photo of a bomb blowing up a car and then he said where can i get one of those i don't even know necessarily if you can say specifically how we read into what was said there but all we know is that uh, Mike Maynard, who's got uh, 209 career wins as the head coach at University of Redlands, was asked uh, allegedly to resign or retire by the end of this week. So you may know before we have a chance to tell you. We're keeping an eye on that as well. And I think it's it's just remarkable, and not maybe not necessarily in, in a good way, um, that uh, you know someone who has 20 plus years of head coaching experience can uh, can. Boy, I don't want to say blow up their career, but that's the only way I can can think of how to describe it with uh, with a single tweet. We don't have a sponsor for this month's podcast right here at this point, though. I want to 
take time to recognize, to remember, to memorialize uh, uh, the late Chris Wensler. Chris is the uh, longtime sports information director at John Carroll University, just a few years older than I am, and uh, earlier this week lost his 26-month battle with cancer. Uh, he, as you know, bravely shared his entire journey on uh, on his Facebook page, and then you know, on Tuesday afternoon, just hours before he passed away, he made a post talking about how he was going into hospice care, that this would probably the, would certainly be the last thing that he ever posted to Facebook. Just really uh, amazing what he has gone through, what he went through, and kind of the legacy that he leaves behind with, uh, you know, as a, as a John Carroll alum, as uh, the sports information director at John Carroll since I can't even tell you when, back in the uh, London Fletcher years, so 20 plus years uh, longer than that as the uh, SID at John Carroll. I just want to say, Chris Wensler, you were the man. Thank you so much for everything that you did for NCAA Division Three and for sports information directors and for people like us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're talking with Chip Taylor, the head coach at Hamlin University, uh, now entering, what is this, season number five? Or is that what we're going for here now at, at, at Hamlin? Yep, season five as the head football coach. Uh, 2016 was my first year as a head coach, and I was here three years previously as a defensive coordinator. So. Right, under uh, under uh, Chad Rogoszewski, right? Chad Rogoszewski, Coach Rogo, spoke to him a couple weeks ago, man. Still a good friend, man. Good buddy, good friend, and he's doing he's going to get capital out in Ohio turned around as well, so. I know, uh, I know he's been working on that, and that is a, a tough place to do that in, a tough conference. Similarly for you guys, right? The MIAC, one of the top conferences, top, uh, you know, been rated uh, number number two, I think, by us out of the 28 conferences a couple times in the last few seasons. So really difficult to move up in, in that conference. We want to talk about that, but we want to talk about everything else that's gone on in Minneapolis and St. Paul over the course of the past few weeks. Um, and all sorts of things. So um, we'll come back to the MIAC stuff. Uh, what I really want to talk about first, though, is, you know, Hamlin uh, in St. Paul, uh, you know, not right on the, um, you know, the path where a lot of the protests and, and other things took place during the course of, you know, the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd back at the end of May. But, you know, Hamlin is, you know, in that neighborhood and I want to first ask about, you know, your student athletes, you know, how many of them live in the area? How were they affected? How were they impacted? What did you hear from them as, as all this has been going on and continues to go on as we record this? Yeah. Um, well, you know, first and foremost, I'd just like to, you know, before we get going, just, you know, heart goes out to the Floyd family, man. That's a, that's a, that's a scary situation. Um, I was actually on Lake Street the day that it happened. I was coming back from a lake on Memorial Day. So that's just... It's scary, man, when you know that that could have easily been myself, you know. Uh, we have some guys in that South Minneapolis neighborhood that I checked in on. And, um, you know, the young people today, they're, they're, they're pretty outgoing. You know, I had a couple guys out there, you know, protesting and, and marching. And, and one guy uh, got his hand busted up. Um, I couldn't exactly understand how. Um, and he was a former player that I checked in on. Um, uh, but it was th those two kids that were down in the South Minneapolis area, they were former players. So I just had to check in on them. Um, but our immediate guys on our team, everybody is good. I had, I know I had some guys that went out 
um, and did some peaceful protesting. Um, but these guys are, you know, guys are angry and they want their voices heard. And, you know, unfortunately, um, another death by a cop, you know, that's, that's never, um, that's never a good thing, man. So it's scary. It's scary for our, all of our student athletes, but especially the ones, the ones that look like myself, you know, young black uh, football players or young black men, period, man, you know, when you get stopped, you know, how you react. Um, it's just things that we got to talk about. Certain things I got to talk about with my son that some of my assistant coaches don't have to talk to about with their son. So just a scary situation. And, you know, we continue to keep moving forward, but our guys are doing good. Our guys are doing well. But you kind of drive it home right there at the very beginning of that. You said you were on Lake street on that day. Yep. Um, yeah. When I got home and then the next morning I said, Oh my goodness, I couldn't believe that happened. You know, on a, you know, where I was on a path that I was going home back to St. Paul. So it's just scary, but I mean, it's just, you know, it's been, you know, I've been living that kind of reality for 40 years. So, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I talked to our team and, you know, some of the guys asked how I was doing and some of the parents asked how I was doing, but, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, it almost gets kind of to a point where you get numb to it and that's not healthy. And that's, that's, that's pretty sickening when you, a guy can die on TV and be like, oh, you know, that's, that's, that, that's nothing out of the norm, you know, so something's got to change. You know, it does. Yeah, I really feel like, you know, as someone who grew up in Minnesota and then has moved back here and lived here for, you know, another uh, 12 years or so, you know, we kind of forget that, you know, uh, Minnesota has this reputation as this really, you know, progressive, woke, for lack of a better term, place. But, you know, it really is not that way, is it? <clears throat> um, <laughs> it's... And, you know, knock on wood, I, I don't have any complaints about Minnesota. Okay. But the thing that you start to realize, you know, being from Philadelphia, um, live, growing up in South Jersey, um, being able to work at a bunch of different schools, you go into a lot of these schools and neighborhoods, Minnesota included. You know, you have North, North Minneapolis um, and then you have the suburbs. You know, you have inner city Philadelphia, suburbs, Chicago, inner city, yeah. suburbs. And it was always interesting to me when I you go into these schools, um, into the suburbs and just looking at, the, the, the different, um, the lighting in the suburbs, you know, the lighting in the schools were always a little bit uh, brighter. And when you go into the inner city schools, the lighting is darker. It's, it just always interests you the disparity uh, with the education systems. So my point is every, every state you go to for the most part with a major city is the same thing. You know, and that's what I really realized living in Minnesota. Now, like I said, I've had nothing but good experiences here, but you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul, is not too much different than Chicago. It's just a little bit smaller. Not too much different than Milwaukee. Not too much different than St. Louis, Miami. I mean, it's just, it's interesting how these cities, they're all kind of, and I wrote it down in my notes one day, I said, man, all cities are the same. You have yeah. good schools, you got poor schools, good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods. I mean, you know, there's a big disparity with, um, with, with, with the financial situations. I have no good way to transition to another topic, so this is going to be a pretty hard, uh, a, a, a pretty hard turn on a dime here. <laughs> Not that long ago, the MIAC announced that uh, St. Scholastica would be joining the league for all sports. McAllister would bring its football program back in, and this is for the fall of 2021. Uh, teams would split into divisions. Someone like your program, uh, you know, depending on where you end up, or any program in your division. Uh, depending on where you end up in any particular year, might not face St. John's, for example, for a couple of years uh, and that sort of thing. How do you feel about, you know, what this new MIAC looks like going forward in 2021 and, and how it might benefit or otherwise impact your program? Yeah, um, MIAC is a, is a super strong league. Uh, we just visited with a bunch of recruits the other day, and that's one of the main things we sell about coming to play at a Hamlin. You know, you're going to get a chance to play against top-notch um, 
talent. So with St. School coming in, and we had them actually scheduled uh, for four years uh, non-conference. So it's kind of cool bringing them in. And then McAllister being back is, is cool. And, and it makes sense geographically. Yeah. They're, um, both those schools academically are strong. And like I said, from a geographical standpoint, it, it, it fits. So, you know, they broke up the division. They broke up the league into two divisions. And um, it'll be good. It'll, it'll be a good, uh, it'll be a good shakeup. And sometimes you got to do things a little bit differently. Man. You know, you keep doing the same thing over and over and over. It can get a little stagnant. So I think, you know, that you know, our commissioner, Dan McCain, did a good job of champion, championing those two schools. And um, it'll, be, it'll be fun. It'll be interesting to watch how uh, things develop over the next couple years uh, with, the, with the league. So. Yeah, and it's been a struggle for you guys, right? I mean, there was a a stretch where uh, you know Hamlin was winning four or five games a season, and then things have kind of come back a little bit. What does it look like for twenty twenty? And what are the things you know that I mean? You just said you can't keep doing the same thing over and over, right? What are the things that uh, Hamlin looks to change here going forward? Yeah, um, again, it always starts. Again, it starts with you know leadership from the top. You know, we have an awesome president. President Miller does a good job. He's very supportive. Outstanding athletic director, Mr. Verdugo. They've they've instilled the confidence in me. You know, because like you said, you know, as a defensive coordinator, we were two and eight, four and six, four and six. My first year as a head coach, we went five and five. That was one of the best years that Hamlin had had since I think 1996. Yeah. Uh, the next year we struggled, went two and eight. Um, we're in some close games, and in the last two years, 19 and 18 and 19. We struggled, man. We, we lost some kids due to finances, finance, um, academics, um, you know, guy maybe couldn't be eligible. And um, flat out, you know, from a geographical standpoint, some of the kids that we brought in just didn't stick. And we had some really good players from Florida, Georgia. They would be seniors right now or juniors last year. That would have really helped us. So, you know, just kind of changing up our recruiting philosophy um, as far as really trying to get guys um, that really fit Hamlin. And what I mean by that, we st- they still might come from distance, but still about the fit like you got to really want to come to the midwest and be okay living in um in minneapolis when it's uh january and it's minus 25 degrees and you got to go lift like you know we i feel like we got the right kind of kids now and <clears throat> when your roster becomes bigger and bigger which will be at about you know 80 guys this year uh, give or take you know that's going to really help us because it allows you to practice a different way you know when you got a smaller roster you know you necessarily can't break up you know you put you're getting a lot of more you could put more wear and tear on the guys because they're 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 giving a look yeah. For the you know for the for the first team, so just building your roster, um, having the administration that believes in you. I mean, that's I feel like I feel like we're on the cusp. We played a lot of young guys last year, and even in 2018, those guys are going to be juniors. Like those guys got a lot of they got a lot of MIAC ball in them. So I feel really good about the 2020 class, which is one of the biggest classes since I've been here. You know, even when Coach Rogo was here, he brought in a really huge class our first year, and this class is about two or three more guys more. So I'm super excited about. 2020 season and, and what we can do with the with our younger guys who become older and then obviously these freshmen coming in yeah I was looking at your roster and I was seeing you know these a uh, bunch of Georgia guys a bunch of guys from Arizona a uh, couple Colorado guys you know especially the the Georgia and Arizona uh, and maybe Florida too these are places where d3 schools are trying to make inroads right and and probably mm-hmm. have over the course of the past 10 years or so um, this big class that's come in is it uh, you uh, how like how geographically dispersed is it yeah uh, great question um you know we have two coming from florida which is which we feel like are the right fits um, we have one coming from virginia uh, which is again a, a, the right fit we got seven coming from texas which are you know, i'm super excited about that we've never had a tech we've had one texas kid on this team and that was my first year and he and, he, and it, it didn't work out academically mm-hmm. um majority from you know we have a majority from minnesota 
one, two from Iowa coming this year. We got a kid from, uh, we got a kid from Montana. We've got a kid from Idaho, um, one from California, a couple from Colorado. I'm looking at my map right now. I gotcha. Um, a couple from Arizona. And uh, we actually, is this is crazy. And we got one coming from Canada and we got one coming from, uh, we got one from Hawaii. So, I mean, wow. this is, I know, I know, I know. And, and again, talking about the fit for his mom to send them here. It was so funny. They have an uncle that lives in Rosemont. Okay. So I felt really good about, I said, man, you know, cause I was like, I don't know if Hawaii is going to work for this guy, but you know, he's been to Minnesota. Mom felt comfortable. Mom's brother uh, lives in, in Rosemont. So again, it's, that kid is, you know, we had what he academically we had what um, he was looking for. So super excited about getting him. So we we're, we're all over the place. Now. We got, we got some guys coming from some, some different places. So. Uh, as someone who has sent a college student halfway across the country, uh, it is good to have them in a spot where uh, <laughs> where there are other adults that they can rely on. So that's great. Sure, absolutely. What does the uh, fall semester look like in Hamlin? What are what are the uh, have plans been announced for what fall twenty twenty is going to look like? You know, in um, terms of bringing you know, kids in. Come out yet. Um, I know. Again, talked about this is probably the third time I'm mentioning President Miller's name. You know, she's going to do um, you know what's best for not just the student athletes, but what's best for the whole general population. So I know they're still working through that, you know, what the protocol looks like with the, the COVID disease, uh, the COVID virus, excuse me. So she, we're working through it. Um, I know that they want to make a, um, a decision here pretty soon. So we just sit tight we sit back and we just control, we control, like you telling my staff and, and our players. So, I mean, things seem pretty, um, you know, like they're on the upswing a little bit, or there's some more confidence that we're going to get a season in. Like the NCAA, as we're recording this just yesterday, announced plans uh, for how schools are going to bring kids back for the fall. Like you'll be able to uh, have them on campus starting August 10th. And I know that your plans uh, are going to depend on whatever uh, President Miller is going to announce here sometime, you know, in the uh, forthcoming days or weeks. But, you know, are you, uh, what are you looking forward to or what are you, are you excited about the, you know, the new, the possibility of bringing them back in that early and, and getting some work with them? Yeah, anytime, again, like <laughs> whenever I'm in front of, you know, the freshmen um, during like training camp, you know, we always have a parent meeting. It's always like, it's, it's like Christmas time. You remember like how Christmas you know, you're always, you're so anxious. You see all the, the presents underneath the tree and you kind of count down until you can open up those presents. Well, that's what the recruiting process is like. When those guys say they're coming, they're under the tree. And then you get to that first day of training camp. And then it's like, man, I can play with this toy and I get to see what this one can do. And, you know, I, you know, so it's, 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 it's I'm a, I would be, um, I'm excited to get our guys on campus, man, and really get a chance to see what they can do and, and, and put the pieces to the puzzle, man, who's going to fit which freshmen are going to help us. There are going to be some freshmen that can't help us right now because they got to develop to be a Mayak football player. But there's going to be some guys that can, that can really help us. I'm anxious to, to get our hands on those guys and coach them up, man, and, and um, help develop them to be good young people, man. So, How did the recruiting process go here, basically, since, you know, campus was closed down in the middle of March? You know, when I think, you know, a lot of kids are still making decisions. Yeah, you know what? We did – so Division Three, man, it has changed rapidly since even I came from Bucknell – to Hamlin in 2013, it was a lot more back then. It was a lot more starting recruiting at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. That's that is no more. You know, ever since the 2017, man, you're on these kids, you know, starting in April. You know, so we had to sort of answer your question. We had the bulk of our work done because I remember our last day on campus was uh, March 16th, okay. and we had a we had a we had a majority of our class already um, committed. You know, so we just had to finish up a few things. You know, doing Zoom videos with families. Um, or Google Hangout videos with families. And, you know, we got a lot of our work done before we got kicked out. So, and that's the way it should be. You know, you should be 
you know, because national signing date is always the first Wednesday in February. But for Division Three, man, by March, you should pretty much know what your class is. So that's a that's that's a, uh, hats off to our staff going out and doing a great job with you know prospecting and recruiting and getting guys, you know, getting the right kind of kids at Hamlin. So to answer your question, we had a lot done before we got kicked off. So it was just really tying tying up some loose ends with me doing calls like this. So. I think that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of schools that are, you know, especially ones that are enrollment dependent, right, uh, who are really concerned about the kids who have, you know, who accepted uh, an offer of admission actually following through, you know, putting through the deposit, deciding to come this year rather than take uh, take a year or, or that sort of thing. But I, I think we've always kind of had the thought that, you know, someone who's coming to play football or someone who's coming to play a sport is a little bit more engaged and a little more eager to get started. Have you had any trouble or any, uh, you know, kids talking about maybe they're not going to come because of uh, the way uh, the coronavirus is spreading? Yeah, I mean, if, I, if I'm being honest, I mean, I had a couple conversations with some kids from the West Coast that said, you know, if, if you know, we didn't have football, they probably would uh, maybe sit this year out, you know. So those are honest conversations um, that you got to have. But other than that, you know, everybody else is you know, going to try and figure out a way to, to make it work. You know, so we're crossing our fingers, hoping that we can um, have, you know, um, students back on campus and um, have a season. But that, that has come up. Yes, it has. Keith, as I said earlier, this is a, you know, an interview that was recorded a week and a half to two weeks ago. But... You know, even though time changes and things are moving quickly, um, I thought this was a really great conversation that we had to have in this podcast. I love how in the off-season pods we have coaches on who talk about building a program and who highlight the rest of Division Three, the teams other than the 32 playoff teams who make up the vast majority of players and programs. But to me, the most powerful part of that interview with Chip Taylor was the beginning, and it spotlights a huge place where even well-meaning people diverge. Coach Taylor says he was driving down the same street as George Floyd, you know, and I can relate. I can see it being him or me or my dad. George Floyd was 46. I'm 43. My dad is 62 and resembles George Floyd a lot more than I do. Uh, Like a lot of people, I grew up with immense respect for my father and and maybe an unspoken way. And I always felt like he could handle anything. But he lives out near Whitworth, which is not far from northern Idaho, which for a long time was an Aryan nation stronghold. And so I worry about my dad running into the wrong people and, and being outnumbered and facing a problem that he can't handle. And, uh, and I think when you have that kind of fear about being overpowered, not by bad people, but by the system you're taught is uh, here to protect you. It can make you cynical, distrustful, fearful. And uh, Chip Taylor is a head football coach at a private university. I work as an editor at a major news organization. And we both know that our so-called status, our achievements in life are or having been on the right side of the law for, for our whole life, it won't save us if we run into the wrong group of, of police officers on the wrong day. And so look, that doesn't mean we walk around every day deathly afraid of an encounter with police. You know, on the rare chance we have one, it'll probably go well. But if you ask me, a lifetime law-abiding citizen, whether I'd want the police to show up to a scene of a problem or take my chances handling it myself, you can guess the answer. Because at least that way, I only have to worry about one perceived threat. And I think what else is interesting about having a coach who lived this experience and supports his players and former players' rights to voice their opinions is that uh, as older men, you know, we sort of look down on the youth as not well-rounded enough to have their opinions really matter. You know, they haven't just lived enough or had enough life experience yet 
um, to, to, to for us to really listen to what they have to say. But but as we'll see coming up pretty soon in the podcast, they are seizing the moment and really making some of the older generations proud. So proud that we'll look past the skinny jeans and the need for content approval on social media and say, you guys are really doing something right now. And, and it's a moment when all the men in your life that you look up to, your coaches, your family elders are looking back and saying, regardless, regardless of how closely our views align, the, the seizing of this important moment by young people and, and, and especially young men and young football players as well uh, to try to correct hundreds of years of wrongs, both overt and subtle, that we haven't done such a great job correcting uh, through our generations over time is, uh, is just really important. They are definitely seizing this moment. We're going to talk more about that coming up in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Keith, you know, uh, Chip Taylor is one of now 17 black head coaches in Division Three football. Um, 17 for this upcoming season is up from 11. We've added six this offseason. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago when it was, you know, just three, like Shermwood at Salisbury and, you know, not too many others. It's grown, but this is still just like 6% of Division Three. And I think, too, if you're one of those people who hasn't been um, in tune to the the subtle ways that racism um, or discrimination or prejudice, uh, if you want to use less heavy terms, um, impact daily life, your, your generation, Pat, and mine, we can remember when it was rare to see a black quarterback, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there's Warren Moon and then... You know, go back a little further, James uh, James Harris. There was a guy on the Raiders uh, as well. But it was, like, rare. These guys we're going to talk to in the podcast right now, they grew up um, watching Steve McNair and Donovan McNabb and Dante Culpepper. And, and we're at a point now where you don't even really uh, differentiate in your mind, I think, between Russell Wilson and Drew Brees and Tom Brady and Lamar Jackson. They have different playing styles, but you don't think of quarterbacks as – quote unquote, black quarterbacks and, and just quarterbacks. Right. So uh, I think we're getting to that same place with coaching. Um, 17 sounds like a lot, but remember there are 245 plus division three uh, football playing uh, colleges. Um, and that, I don't know how many are going to be active this fall, but, uh, but as of, uh, as a last count, there were, you know, the numbers just a hair below 250. So still 17 out of 250 is not a lot, um, but also in Division Three, much less than the NFL, uh, where black men make up most of the the, the players uh, mm-hmm. or the, the pool of players. Uh, you know, the number is like close to 70 percent. I think in D3, that number is a lot lower. And so it's not quite as uh, as odd to to uh, to not have so many black coaches. But also, I think. Um, so many hundreds and hundreds. I mean, if you think every year, um, 20, 20 something thousand players play division three football, then there are hundreds of people who are qualified to do this, to stay in coaching, to want to, um, grow up and influence other, uh, young men into, and, and teach them how to grow up and be productive members of society. So, uh, you know, you have 17 men right now doing that. And, and, and I think, it's not just gonna. It's not just men. Uh, not just black men, right? Men of men of color, um, and there there are certainly going to be guys uh, like Shermwood, who we had on the podcast not all that long ago, who um, who said he always thinks of himself as a coach first and not a black coach, which I think is probably a popular sentiment, but also um, 
you have to have administrations and and uh, universities who are open yeah. to finding the the right leader. Um, and, and sometimes that leader is going to be a black man. I think when you listen to Sherm or Chip Taylor or, or uh, Dustin Johnson, who we had on, on a podcast uh, not that long ago, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you, I say this all the time when we do these coach interviews, right? You listen to that guy and you're like, I see why people want to play for him. And that's, that's you know, white coaches, um, black coaches, coaches of Hispanic origin, right? Like it, it's something about the way they lead and the way they bring, um, you know, you it just they just bring something out of you. I mean, probably Glenn Caruso is one of the, the greatest examples and we have him on the pod all the time right you just when he talks you can understand why um young impressionable men listen to him i think you need that and you need administration open to to hiring uh that kind of coach um you know whether whether he's black or not All right, we're up to the roundtable portion of our podcast, and typically when we've had roundtables, they have been all us, right? Me and Keith and someone like uh, Adam Turr or Greg Thomas or Frank Rossi or, or something like that. We are turning the tables around a little bit. We want to make sure that we listen a little bit more, listen to uh, some of the current student athletes in NCAA Division Three. We have uh, these, uh, these three guys are going to introduce themselves. But uh, we've got uh, Nick Hayes from Millsaps, we have Malcolm Lang from Wabash, and we have Devin Smith uh, from Cortland. And like every time that we talk about this sort of thing, when I'm just writing down what is next in the rundown, I kind of just refer to it in quotes as the state of the world. But that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah, and I think, you know, Pat, even though you live in Minneapolis and you were very close to the to the social unrest that went on, and, and I cover it for a living. It's still not our moment. And so it was important for us in this podcast to talk to three uh, young, educated black men uh, about what this moment means to them and 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 where it goes from here and, and how they got involved in it. Um, and so, you know, I think without further ado, we should let them speak. But I, I, the, the real important thing for you and I to highlight was just that as much as we try to spend an hour a month or an hour a week in, when, when we're in season, breaking down what's happening um, in Division Three, and, and sort of sometimes we can only touch the surface of, of a bunch of different things rather than get deep into one thing. We had an opportunity here to let some people um, get a little bit beneath the surface. And so I'd much rather you listen to them than listen to Pat and I uh, talk like you always do, because there are, there are 275 of those podcasts if, you're, if you really want to listen to us. I'm Malcolm Lang. Uh, defensive end, uh, play for Wabash College. Um, I major in English with a double minor in psychology and black studies. I also take part in the Malcolm X organization. My name is Nick Hayes. I go to uh, Millsaps College. I play receiver. I'm a rising junior. I'm from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I'm a communications major with a uh, business minor, and I participate in the uh, Male Empowerment Network. Pan African Student Alliance and uh, the Team for Racial Healing. Uh, my name is Devin Smith. I play defensive end at SUNY Cortland. I'm, I'm a senior coming up. I'm a criminology major with a political science minor, and my hometown is from Utica, New York. And each of you guys can sort of recap um, 
like where you were or what you were thinking about when you first realized that, um, you know, that, that would happen to, to George Floyd and, and the reaction to it was, um, was different than before. Cause I think what happens, at least what's happened to me over, over uh, enough time. And there, there's another coach whose interview will be on this podcast who he, he says sort of the same thing where it, it, it happens so often you get numb to it and you, and you get to the point where, you know, you feel like you, you know, you don't accept it, but it's, but it's, it's hopeless. It's like part of, um, part of the risk you take living as a black man, part of, um, part of our culture. And like, when did you guys realize that this was, um, this was different? This was a time, this was so heinous that we had to speak up or um, there was just enough movement happening around um, people supporting one another where you, where you felt like you could really take some action this time. Initially, uh, if I'm being quite honest, I didn't think it was gonna be that different of a situation um uh the the first time i caught wind of it um i was actually headed to a different area so i have a summer internship so i was heading to uh, south bend um to work for a health department right and so when i caught wind of it um it was a frenzy uh on uh, social media outlets and whatnot um and it at first it it kind of it kind of gave me like this um reminiscent feel of like when I was in uh, high school and the Trayvon Martin thing happened sure. and the Eric Gardner thing happened. And so I was upset and, and I was probably had the same amount of um, anger and distress as I did uh, as the previous cases happened. Um, but I did not realize how big um, the situation was and how large the magnitude of the situation was um, until all the protests started to happen and the rioting started to happen. So it first started off with the Minnesota, right? But then um, you just hear like these other large cities, uh, New York, uh, Houston, um, many other cities starting to uh, protest and whatnot. And even my home, my hometown, uh, Hammond, Indiana, which is Northwest Indiana, um, they engaged in a protest. And, like everybody was on board and everybody like was obviously taken aback from the situation and like even the uh Ahmad Armbury yeah. uh murder that transpired prior to that like there was so there was already some uh underlying tension uh with those type of situations right so um I feel like with um COVID happening and people actually having a chance to really sit down and internalize these situations and understand the magnitude of these situations. Um, I feel like that is what kind of um, enabled more people to uh, be more progressive and take action, so. Nick, where were you when you, when you first realized uh, this, this was perhaps more impactful than, than previous times? I like first realized like this one was different, I guess, in a way, because like I just felt like it was the culmination of like what's been going on. Like he mentioned Am Ahmaud Arbery and then uh, Breonna Taylor also and like three murders in like such a short span. Like I just felt like, you know, it's like we have no choice but to step up 
and really do something about it now. Like it's been thrown in our face. COVID is going on. Like we don't have anything else to pay attention to. No sports, no anything. So like after George Floyd, like it just grabbed everybody's attention and it brought more attention to like the Ahmaud Arbery's, the Breonna Taylor's. So like I immediately knew, especially like looking at social media and things like that, I immediately knew like this time was going to be different. What about you, Devin? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what Malcolm said really hit it. Like, like with COVID thing, everybody was really had the time to sit down by themselves and like realize what's going on in the world. And, you know, I always, I always said history repeats itself. And this has been an ongoing issue for decades, for years. And it's something that the black community has been fighting for justice and, and systematic racism be gone in our country. And like, I think that's, that's kind of when I hopped hopped on and started get on social media and, and help out and try to educate people that might not understand the dangers that a black man faces in our country today. When you say that too, when you say it's been going on for a long time, do you hear that? Um, do you know that from, from obviously being an educated person and, and having gone to school or are there, uh, are there family influences uh, maybe that, um, that open you up to that? Because I, I feel like one thing that happens is People say it's it happened so long ago, but for most of us, we have um, you know grandparents or, uh, or family members who've, who've lived through some pretty um, traumatic moments, and that shapes how they raise us. Did you guys have any any family influences, or or did you just take an interest in history, or or did kind of you just kind of grow up knowing? How do you, how do you how do you know it's been going on for so long? Well, on. Speaking on my behalf, um, I've actually had family members uh, that has had trouble with the law. Um, and a lot of things uh, escalated into serious situations. I was just saying, like, I'm from Memphis. So, like, ever since a young age, like, we got the National Civil Rights Museum in the city. So, like, ever since a young age, like, you know, we're taking field trips to it, seeing it. Like, just seeing the history of, like, the struggle for civil rights in this country. And then, like, my great-grandmother was a great influence on me because she was, like, played an active role in the civil rights movement, especially in Memphis, like, marching with the sanitation workers, like, going to Dr. King's rallies, that kind of thing. So, like, it's kind of like, I've kind of just been, like, I guess I've just been around it my whole life in a way. For me, like, I'm from upstate New York, so, uh, you know, like, it's something that my mom kind of warned me my whole life, like, if you get pulled over, like, this is what you have to do. Like, it's a little different for you. Like, I, I went to an all-white high school. So, like, I faced a couple challenges that some people may not have faced. But, like, learned, I really learned, like, history through school and kind of, like, my family educating me on what happened and what's been going on. Yeah, so I've had family that has uh, had trouble with the law. But what makes my case slightly, um, slightly different is that uh, my father is actually a correctional officer, so he actually is a, a part of the criminal justice system. And so his perspective, um, which kind of, uh, I wouldn't say just opposed, but it does create like uh, um, a different perspective on things when you have family members that have been on the wrong side of the law and a family member that is um, represents that system to a certain extent. Um, and just the ramifications of that can kind of, yeah, make it very conflicting. Um, so, how did that how did that influence um, 
you get into college, did he really want you to go? Or was this something that was a, always a dream of yours? Did football play a big part or, or all three? Um, so I was going to go to college regardless um, because um, my parents are were in the military. Um, and so, you know, their whole motto was uh, we went into the military so you didn't have to, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, you know, I never told them this, but I actually considered going into the military myself, but uh, they thought that it would be my best interest to actually uh, go on to school and uh, take a different route. What about um, you, Nick and, and Devin? Were you, were you always, um, were you always college bound or, or did some, some influences in your, uh, in your family or in your upbringing kind of push you in that direction? It was about also like, uh, both of my parents went to college, graduated college. And so, like, ever since, like, a young age, you know, like, my parents just, like, encouraged it. Like, you know, th- like, they pushed me to be great in school, be great in athletics, like, just do my best. And so, like, for me, I just feel like college was always, like, what I was going to do. Like, that was just high school, college, job. You know what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, that's exactly right. how it was for me. Like, I didn't even know I had other options. Yeah. What about you, Devin? Yeah, same. It's something that's always been uh, pushing me to go to college. Like my mother didn't finish college, but I have an older sister. She went to college, and you know I have a little brother. He's planning on going to college. It's something that my mom pushed us to educate ourselves a little more. You know, what's your experience been like on campus? You know, I've been to to Millsaps and to Cortland, and been to uh, I've been at a Mon and Bell game at in, in Greencastle, right? I don't know if it counts. But I mean, I, you know, those, I mean, like for, for me, I was choosing between a small private school um, made up of mostly mostly white students and maybe 50 to 100 black people uh, or people of color and, uh, and HBCU, like one of my other choices was Howard. And, um, and, and I chose to, to go to Randolph-Macon, which is part of the reason was because I, I could play football and I could, um, do all those those other things. What's your experience like been on a, a campus that is, um, you know, not uh, necessarily majority people of color, and especially uh, in this moment? For me, we, we really stick together. So I'm in a program that it's called EOP. It's in New York. And it's like really, it's dominant of people of color. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of knew I had a group of friends and like we kind of stick together through class. And we, we were told, you know, like, some of you guys may go to high school and you might have one white person in your class. It's going to be flipped. You'll be the one select few. So stick together, watch over yourself. And, you know, it helps a lot having a lot of black teammates also. And especially even at its period, not just black teammates. Teammates are always there to support you, no matter like where you are. If you get in trouble, they're here to pull you out. Like if anything happens, you know, you got your teammates to depend on coaches. If you need somebody to talk to, you know. Coming out of high school, like, my high school was like 50-50, like it was a good mix of just like a lot of people. Like it was one of the biggest high schools in Memphis. And so like, but when it came to like choosing my college, like I knew like I really wanted to play football. And like all I really had was like D3 offers. So like schools like uh, Millsaps, Rose, Sewanee, like those were like the schools I was choosing between and Washington and Lee and uh, Virginia. So like when I picked Millsaps, like I just felt like, you know, like it was a family, like it was a small school, like we have like right around 900 kids and like we probably have like I want to say like 100 or so black students 
but like my experiences at the school have been like really great. Like my first day, well, like coming into fall camp, like my first couple of days, like I made like great friends who I've been cool with like since that day. And like, you know, like coming in, you're like, I don't know anybody. And it's like, you know, you're just trying to find your spot. And like, especially like the black guys, like we just linked up together immediately. Just like, you look like me, we gonna be cool type stuff. Like we're the minority here, so we gotta be cool. But like also like at the school, like we started a, uh, me and a group of my buddies, we started an organization called the Male Empowerment Network. And so basically just for all the like black men on campus to come together, like have a space of their own, like talk about like whatever's going on in their life, whatever struggles they're going to, and to just like help each other get through college and, you know, have lifetime connections. So for me, I can kind of uh, just piggyback off of what both of them said. Um, so yeah, I go to a predominantly white college and I also take part in a, a student-led organization, uh, the Malcolm X Institute organization. And they kind of pride themselves off the um, same things that uh, the organizations they par take part of, uh, which means uh, building a brotherhood between uh, minorities, right? And also um, focusing on creating like this idea of diversity and, and inclusion on campus and uh, whatnot. Um, and I think if I could sum up uh, my experience at being at a predominantly white uh, private uh, college, I guess I could sum it up to one word and that would just be like, or a phrase that would be like a cultural shock. Like I come from a place that's very diverse. Um, my high school was very diverse. And so like you're kind of, there's multiple uh, cultures infused in a particular in that particular setting. Um, whereas now I'm in a, a predicament where like I'm kind of out of my element kind of out of my uh, comfort zone, but with like the student led organization that I'm a part of and the um, camaraderie and uh, brotherhood that the minorities have on campus, uh, that makes it uh, a place for me to really feel comfortable. So, yeah. I mean, all that, all that hits home super closely. Um, for me personally, I came from uh, New Jersey and, and went to college in central Virginia. So that's, it was a bit, it was a bit of culture shock too. And the, the biggest difference was um, the stuff that was considered like cool to do and fun to do on campus was never my thing. And just having um, 20, 30 other, other people who, um, who like to do what I like to do um, made all the rest of it fall into place because the academic opportunities were there, the football opportunities were there and um, ha having somewhere where you could feel like you fit in, even if you don't fit in, to the overall um, social structure on campus. If, you know, for, for where I went, the, the fraternities were very big dominant part of the social structure and, and the drinking from like Wednesday through Sunday was a big deal. And if that wasn't what you did, um, you know, you, you'd have been left out unless you had a group where you could, could um, feel like you fit in. Do you guys ever feel like, um, when you quote unquote stick together, do you feel like there's there's any backlash against that or, or people who wonder why you you find camaraderie with, amongst each other? Yeah, like, so like, it's like, at my school in Middlesex, like, it's me and I got like three other friends that like, we just form like a band, like one band, one sound, whatever one of us do, we all do. And so like some people like, you know, like we go in the calf, we always go in the calf together, eat together. And then like we sweet mates too. So we go to the room and just hang out all the time. And so people would be like, why don't y'all ever like 
come hang with us. Like, why do y'all always sit by yourselves in the cab? And it's just like, this is why I came. Like, these were the first people that, like, like these were the first people I surrounded myself with, got cool with. And, like, we just formed our own, I guess, like, little community inside a Millsaps. And that's just, like, where we feel most comfortable because we can be ourselves around each other. Yeah, I, and I don't know if, if if all you guys relate to that, but I think one of the the sort of larger takeaways from this moment for some people who haven't previously realized why why guys I guess race issues for lack of a better way to put it are such a big deal is like uh, if if the default normal is what everybody else is doing and you're and you don't feel like um, whatever you are is normal or accepted. Um, you feel like, I, I think you feel like you, pressure for you to change yourself and who you are, who you feel comfortable being to fit into something that you know you aren't. And whenever you find that um, group, you guys tell me if this is true or not. If, if and when you find that group, you can kind of take the mask off, so to speak, and just be yourself. Yeah, I can. I kind of, yeah, I agree with that uh, sentiment. Um, I feel like um, in terms of backlash, no, I don't, I don't think there's a necessarily a particular backlash on like a particular group of people um, band, uh, banding together, uh, colored people banding together. Um, but there are questions raised, like why do we feel so uncomfortable and um, why do we feel like we can't really uh, immerse ourselves with other groups of people um and I think I don't know how to I don't know how to say it in the right way but I think there's kind of like a hypocrisy in that because I feel like they'll ask that question but they'll never uh take the chance in uh, trying to immerse themselves into what we're doing or into our group right so we have to be the ones to step out of our box right even though it's already uncomfortable for us in the first place whereas they're comfortable but they don't want to step out of their comfort zone. And I'm not saying that's that's for all groups of, um, of or colleges or campuses or stuff like that. But I'm saying there are instances where like stuff like that happens, where like, you know, they don't feel the need to have to reach out. You know. Yeah, it's sort of saying you you bring your your otherness into our normal, as opposed to uh, each people crossing into their own uh, bit individuality. Devin, you said you you your high school was um, was majority white, which I can also relate to. Um, did that make it for less of a culture shock going to uh, going to Cortland? Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with what you said. Like, it wasn't as much of a culture shock for me. You know, if anything, it was it was better for me to have more black people around me and like be around, be able to you know talk to like people that understand the same issues that I may have, you know what I mean? Like some people in my high school might not understand the things that I go through. So it was nice having like, be able to talk to, to other people and you know, that they understand. The other thing I'm, I'm curious about is um, sort of a, a team dynamic where you're put in a group with a um, hundred or so people from uh, all walks of life and, and, you know, I guess we're all men and we all play football, but other than that, like, you know, you got a, you got a hundred people who are look different act different, come from different places. Some are, some are 22 and 21, some are 17, 18 and have different mindsets. Um, and your coaches will sometimes um, preach this kind of 
I don't know if, you know, like not everyone has to be the same, but everyone has to, um, you know, we're all a family. And I think while that's true, families have issues and, and do you feel like when you're within the team structure, you are isolated from the type of uh, racism you might experience elsewhere on campus or do you experience it sometimes within the team as well? I feel, I feel very comfortable with my teammates, you know, especially going through everything right now. They, they have stood by us. Like everybody on my team has stood by us. And like, if anything, I get to be myself around my teammates. You know, that locker room trust is just different. If you play the game of football, you understand. You play any sport, you understand that trust you build in the locker room. So I, I trust them, you know, to defend me through everything. I would say like, you know, my initial experiences were like great with my teammates. I was able to, you know, like, like just able to be myself around them. Cause like, these are the guys you with like just about every day, all day. So like, you know, it was a good experience, but like recently, like I had my first, like, I guess more negative experience with a teammate. Like uh, I was on Twitter one day, like I didn't even follow my teammate. Like I didn't know, but I saw his Twitter. So I started scrolling through his tweets. And like, this was in the wake of George Floyd and everything. And he had like tweets of like white privilege isn't a thing, like Drew Brees shouldn't have apologized, like tweets like to that sentiment. And I was like, he he also plays the same position as me. So I like text him in the group me and I'm like, hey, give me a call. Like, let's talk, you know, brother to brother, teammate to teammate. Like he just refused to call me, refused to talk to me. And like, I would say like, that's the only negative, more negative experience I've had, like in terms of dealing with my teammates and things like this. Yeah, um, for the most part, um, it's been pretty positive. Um, we like when you're on a football team, you build a brotherhood with all your your teammates because you guys are the same guys that are running wind sprints together, going to six a.m.s together, doing everything together, right? Um, but what I can say is that the football a football team is so large to where you're not going to get a connection with everyone. And um, a relationship you may have with someone in the same uh, position group, like Nick mentioned, uh, would be different if someone is in a different uh, position group. Um, and there has been times where, like, I've had opposing views from some of my uh, teammate counterparts. And um, it has been uncomfortable to, like, really talk about the situation. Um, but at the same time, like, them knowing me as a person, right, and them knowing me, and, and that's the thing, like, even even though I'm your teammate, you have to see me outside of that lens when it comes to situations like this. You yeah. can't see me as Malcolm, the football player. You have to see me as Malcolm, uh, the young black man, right? Like, in order to understand where I'm coming from. And I feel like that is the only complexity of, like, being a part of, like, a team. Um, you kind of have to separate football and, like, real life. And some people can't do that or don't yeah. want to do that. I mean, I'll say for me, like it was a life lesson to learn that um, people who may view you a certain way or who may talk about you behind your back a certain way are also the people you gotta um, line up alongside on Saturday. So um, they on Saturday, you gotta depend on them and they have to depend on you. And that is probably, you can probably extrapolate that to the, to the work world or to the, um, you know, to your social life beyond um, college and football and that, um, not everybody's always going to, that has to work together. Not everybody that work has to work together. 
is always going to be your friend or, or, or have your back in all situations. And you have to learn to coexist, or I had to learn to coexist. Um, so I don't know if find common ground is the right word, but just coexist with people that technically are not really your friend or you don't, you don't get along or like them, but um, for three hours on Saturday and however many practices during the week, you put that aside uh, and you go to work together. Nick, Mississippi being the you know the only state that still has the Confederate battle flag and its state flag, and that's become a big you know issue and topic of conversation coming up uh, mm-hmm. again recently. Obviously, you know uh, Millsaps came out right away with a big statement backing uh, removing that from the flag and changing the flag. How did how did that make you feel? How do you feel when you see that when you're in Mississippi? Uh, to be honest, like at the school, like we really never see the state flag. Like it's just you know, you know what the state flag is, but you never really see it. Like, uh, my school doesn't fly the flag, state doesn't fly the flag, and Ole Miss don't fly the flag. So you don't see it, but, like, I agree, like, strongly that the flag just needs to change. And, like, it's a symbol of, like, oppression that, like, it's just constantly there. And, like, it's just crazy to think, like, the governor of Mississippi, Tay Reeves, like, he graduated from Millsaps, and he had a questionable past at Millsaps. And he's still unwilling to change the flag. And I think, like, like I agree with, like, guys like Highland Hill who are saying, like, you know, they're not going to play because that's not what they represent. They don't represent the state of Mississippi. And it's, you know, constant oppression. And, like, not to say I'm going to sit out, but, like, it's something I would strongly consider doing. Can I ask either of the other two? Like, do you guys, you know, do you guys see the flag around, you know, where you guys are? Do you see it in upstate New York? Do you see it in central Indiana? Either of you guys, Devin? Uh, yeah, I see it. I see it in upstate New York. You know, you see some people flying on their truck. and But, you know, it kind of stays out of Utica. It's kind of like on the outside, the outskirts of Utica. And, you know, you don't see it much, but it, it definitely pops up. Yeah, I primarily see it um, when I'm um, off campus within the uh, community, the Crawfordsville community. Um, yeah, very uncomfortable, but yeah. primarily off campus, though. Yeah. yeah, it was there was a thing at Randolph Macon in in 1995 where it was. Um, I think somebody got told to take it out of their window, and they didn't like it. And I, I actually don't even remember the details of why it was a big deal. Um, but I remember my experience coming from New Jersey was the only time you ever see it was um, somebody like like skinhead or somebody has it as a patch on their jacket. And so there there is no connotation for us in New Jersey um, of, you know, family heritage or whatever other things people would try to attach it to. And when you go to Virginia, at least the part of Virginia that I, that I was in for school, um, it was different. And I know probably people... Um, quote unquote, you know, didn't mean anything by it, but you you just have to understand what it looks like to everyone else. Yeah. And I'd just like to add, like, I know I said I didn't say often, like, I meant, like, in terms of, like, schools flying the state flag, but, like, being from the South and, like, living in the South your whole life, you kind of get, like, desensitized to seeing it. Because, like, you see it, like, that first time out in public, like, on the back of somebody's truck or something like that, and it's like, oh, wow, like, this is how this person really feels. And like you see it over and over and over again, and you just like, oh, it's another person flying the Confederate flag, kind of deal. So, Malcolm, we were told that uh, you have done some work, you know, regarding uh, coordinating 
personal protective equipment for people protesting and that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, in my line of work, uh, I work as an intern in South Bend for the St. Joseph County uh, Health Department. Right. So as an intern, I pretty much bounced around from different uh, sectors uh, working with environmental health as well as um, health outreach and promotion. And a part of that promotion uh, outreach and promotion process was um, we tried to build a partnership or some type of um, alliance with uh, the local Black Lives Matter organization. Um, and through that, uh, they've had protests downtown in the by the city hall and stuff like that. And um, so to show like our solidarity, uh, as well as like our care and a commitment for their cause, uh, we made sure that um, everybody that was protesting were was equipped with um, mask, hand sanitizer, and uh, stuff like that. Because although um, the process is a very important thing, it's also a very important thing um, for people to remain safe, especially in this time period where uh, COVID is still rampant. Um, and uh, that kind of gets lost in, in lost in the minds of people that are protesting, rightfully so, because um, to me, this situation is far more important than um, something that can kind of be passed over in like years to come or so. Mm -hmm. um, but we wanted to make sure that people were safe um, in that. And, and uh, I also work in um, kind of aiding their movement in terms of like figuring out ways that the health department can approach certain health inequities in the area, in the area for uh, African-American people, uh, whether that is, um, whether that is um, unequal uh, EMT respondents in certain areas, uh, whether that's a uh, lack of uh, healthcare access and stuff like that. Um, very tall tasks, but uh, doable um, when you try to approach those particular situations, so. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, Devin, we saw the video that you took part in uh, with the uh, three other uh, black student athletes from Cortland. In this country, the black community has been silenced for far too long. It is time to act by speaking up for what is right. We are all here for the same reason. We all want peace. We all want justice. And we all want racism to end. But the key word is we. Tell me a little bit about you know, A, being asked, you know, what were you asked to say? Did you just come up with it off the cuff? And then what kind of reaction do you, did you see from people, your classmates, and, and that sort of thing from it? You know, when I got asked, I was thankful for the opportunity to use, you know, football as a platform to, to educate people and that may not understand what's going on. And uh, it was kind of like a free thing. Like, she told me, this is what one thing you're going to say, like, introduce yourself and, and whatever you want to tell people go ahead just let them know be passionate about it and you know I sat down I had a night to write it sat down and, and took my time on it and I just wanted people to know like to stand together and if, if you don't understand educate yourself and try to but mainly like keep peace and, and, and give a black community justice you know the thing I wanted to that I wanted to ask um kind of in the form of, of how we were talking before is whether you have um whether you've noticed people or groups of people um, speaking up or showing solidarity that that haven't ever before, um, or or realizing um, things that they previously haven't realized. 
I mean, for me, like the first thing that popped in my head for that was, you know, scrolling through Twitter, you see a lot of people speaking up about it. And I saw this one particular picture of a guy holding a sign and he said, sorry, I'm late. I had to educate myself. You know, that's something that that really hit me, like that people are, are actually trying now and like understanding. I was just going to say, touching on that, I feel like a lot of um, I feel like a lot of my friends back home that live in, in a more diverse environment kind of understand that like our situation isn't the same as other people's situations. Right. So um, there is a level of colorblindness um, that kind of transpire in areas where like uh, it's very diverse. And so you don't when you don't when you're not accustomed to seeing uh, racial issues, you kind of are conditioned to think that there aren't any racial issues. Um, so I can say like, I feel like there's more solidarity uh, uh, from the people um, where I'm from. And in terms of stuff that, I, uh, that I've read, the most profound stuff that I've read as of late, um, I recently reread uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Strivings of Black Folk. And he kind of talks about like what it means um, for uh, black people to, uh, kind of have like this uh, advancement in a society uh, that's against them. And uh, the major theme that's away from that is that um, it's not only the responsibility of uh, people of color, but it's also the responsibility of the majority too. Um, is their issue as much as it's ours? Yeah. And in terms of solidarity, like bouncing off what you said, like I just seen like a lot of solidarity, like with people I'm close to, like all of my, a lot of my non-black friends are like calling me to see like, you know, how are you feeling about this? Like, what are some things that you've experienced, you know, that like, so just we can know because we don't experience these things. So like, I, I say like, I just seem like a lot of solidarity around like people close to each other. And like the most profound thing like I've seen is just like the comparison of the reaction of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee before game compared to like uh, Officer Chauvin kneeing on uh, George Floyd's neck. like just to, to compare the reactions to both of those is just like really opening to see like how things are perceived in the world. And like bouncing off of that, like also seeing how, uh, I can't think of her name, but she was on Fox News, like how she talked about like um, LeBron and KD being involved in politics versus how she talked about Drew Brees, you know, taking his stance for the anthem. I feel like we've we've kind of assumed that everybody knows what we're talking about. And I, I kind of feel like if you're alive in America at this time, you probably should. But, you know, maybe that maybe there's just a way to to wrap it up or, um, or, or one thing you want to leave people with, um, you know, when they think of Nick Cage from Millsaps, uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll remember from from their time on the uh, on the Around the Nation podcast. One thing I would say is. Um, change doesn't happen overnight and um, change manifests itself in multiple ways and uh, taking the part of of this uh, current movement is can be done in multiple uh, facets uh, it can be done through signing petitions it can be done through um, being more involved in your city and looking at certain legislations uh, it can be done through um, donating money and it can be done through protest but like there's multiple ways uh to protest and there's multiple ways to uh, take accountability 
I like I think the big thing to take away is just we can't get distracted from the moment. We gotta keep the pressure on until we get the change that we wanna see. Like Malcolm said, change doesn't come overnight. So like it's important that we continue pushing, continue fighting for what we want. And like, you know, by any means that we can. Like I'm I haven't been protesting just because like health concerns, but like I'm doing as much as I can in terms of like trying to get things organized in Jackson, like voter drives and things like that to help the community and create some kind of meaningful change. Yeah, like exactly what they said, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. I think I think we got to stand together and, and keep fighting for what's right. And me personally, I you know I've been signing petitions, you know, keeping stuff on my social media so people keep running into it and keep scrolling through to see it. And, you know, one reason I'm really striving to, to change is because I don't want, if I have children, I don't want my children facing the same issue that I face. You know, I don't want them growing up, you know, being scared of cops. I want the cops to be able to protect them and know they can trust them to be there for them. And again, thank you. Thank you guys for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all for participating. Um, and Keith, thank you for uh, leading us through this. Yes, I, well, I, I wish we could have conversations like this under uh, under different circumstances. You know, you don't always want to um, to need a reason like this to, uh, to to get together and talk about kind of big, broad, profound ideas. But, um, but by the same token, um, we, we would have been remiss, I think, if we didn't um, reach out to, to the three of you. All right, Keith, one of my big takeaways from something like this is that we should not wait for a, you know, seminal societal changing moment to put a handful of uh, student athletes together and have a conversation because this was this was just amazing. I am glad that uh, all three of those guys gave up their time to join us on this. Yeah, and remember, these are these are leaders within their team. They're smart college educated men and and you know, we really wish we could do it more often. I, I think the one profound thing that um, that I take away from it that we didn't get to touch on necessarily in the interview was was me hearing them having similar relatable experiences um, to me that, that I had in college in the mid 90s, so 20, 20 years ago. And on one hand, it um, you know it could be frustrating, I guess, to to think that people are still going through the exact same. Um, experiences of, of just kind of forcing people into otherness, which I think is a weird um, burden that not everyone understands when you don't when you don't um, go through it. Although you can be other or, or forced into other in in some uh, in ways besides your race, where like you could be ostracized because you're in the drama guild or you're a super smart kid or you're socially weird or or whatever. Um, but if you if you can imagine that moment. And then think what it's like to be like that all the time and, and to have everything you do treated as different uh, and not normal. Uh, you know, it, it can weigh on you a little bit. And so it was weird to to um, to hear them talk about what to, to, to things. It was weird to hear them talk about experiencing things that I went through mm-hmm. in the in the 90s. But I also can tell you what it's like 20 years down the line when you do. um put effort into making your college a better place. Um, you know, Randolph-Macon is a much, almost unrecognizable, um, more diverse place than it was. And it's, you know, it still has its own issues and, and, and nothing is ever just like 
uh, you snap your fingers and it changes. But uh, to me, it's it's just such an amazingly better place. And we played some small role in that. And then I, I would say some of my best friends in the world, literally the guys who I talk about, um, you know, when something like George Floyd happens, and especially because I, I have to try to watch what I say on Twitter um, and and Facebook and stay out of those kind of arguments for professional reasons. It's good to have a group of friends that I can talk to. Um, those are all guys from from Randolph making football. Those are literally my my best friends in the world. And, um, you know, Nick and, and Devin and Malcolm, they can and everybody who's listening, who's in that same boat can can rest, I guess, comfortably knowing that more than likely, you know, the the people who will still be in their lives when they're in their 40s are the friends they're making right now. Um, and that's something that, that I'm sure sure crosses racial boundaries um, because I remember, um, you know, I've seen players cry at, at, at the end of playoff games at the presser and realizing like they're never going to play with their friend again. Um, and I say, yeah, you guys will be friends for life though. Like literally that's exactly how it happens. But it's really profound when you're in a, on a small campus and you're one of a small group uh, it really does bring you close together and, um, and you, you carry that with you for the rest of your life. Now with the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Sean Green of WDEL in Wilmington, Delaware, covering the uh, state of Delaware, including the uh, the one Division three school in the state of Delaware, Wesley College. Sean, thanks uh, for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. Great to be with you, Pat. Yeah, I definitely appreciate it. So will there still be a Division three school in the state of Delaware? That's the question on everyone's mind. There's been talks of Wesley being merged into another school uh, and the identity of that other school has kind of shifted a couple times in the last six months. What can you tell us? Well, at this point, the identity of the school that is being considered is Delaware State University. There are only three football teams in the college ranks in Delaware, the University of Delaware, Delaware State University, a historically black college and university in Dover, and then Wesley, the crosstown rival. Well, a bit of a surprise earlier on this month, we find out that instead of St. Leo's University, who had been the rumored team for the school down from Florida, that now it is Delaware State that is looking at their crosstown school. And we're not quite sure what Dell State sees in Wesley, but apparently this is a merger that is at least being strongly considered at this point. I think the general thinking was when it was St. Leo that uh, that Wesley being you know sufficiently distant could uh, be seen as a completely different campus with completely different athletics and that sort of thing. Delaware State is a Division One school that competes at the FCS level in football. They're in the MEAC, I believe, right across the board yes, and yep. everything else still. Okay, and so I would think that having you know. Delaware State and then some other satellite campus of Delaware State, you know, just mere miles away seems less likely. It's a tough sell. It's two schools that, oddly enough, despite being at the, and I call it 1AA level in Division Three, they've been competing for the same athletes. There have been times when Wesley has had a player they wanted and Dell State with the ability to give out some scholarships has taken that player at the last minute. And there have been players that Dell State wanted and they've really struggled since their last tournament appearance back in 2007, they've lost players to Wesley College. Yeah. So in a sense, you kind of wonder with Dell State really struggling, maybe not putting all of their financial bat eggs that they could into their athletics department, 
that would they be willing to fund two athletics programs? I have a hard time believing that. Yeah, when you put it that way, it makes it uh, really difficult to envision that. I know you've been busy on the news side, uh, but what do you hear from the uh, the Wesley Athletics people, the Wesley f- uh, football program in terms of you know what they think is going forward here coming up in a couple of months? Well, at this point, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered just on the staffing side as they have lost Joe Bottolari, their defensive coordinator, just suddenly announced his retirement. His retirement will be on June the 30th. Now, here's another Dell State connection for you. Steve Azanese, who was one of the most likely finalists for the Wesley head coaching job, is the offensive coordinator at Delaware State University. And Jeff Braxton, who was an offensive line coach at Wesley, has now been at Dell State for a few years. He might be working in a different position than line now. So there are some connections between the two programs, and and that certainly plays into the possibility of, you know, where is this going? Obviously, lots of questions that need to be answered in a lot of ways between now and whenever the 2020 football season might start. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, life in Delaware and news in Delaware outside of sports. Uh, I couldn't help but see on your social media that uh, in your news coverage role, uh, covering protests in uh, downtown, in and around downtown Wilmington, Delaware, that you were a little bit too close to the action. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was the, it was the Saturday that everything kind of went big around the country with the George Floyd protests. Now, I-95 is the major highway that goes through Center City, Wilmington, and I got called out on a Saturday, my one day off a week and stood and covered a protest on I-95. They shut down the major artery through the center city area for about an hour or so, went home, thought we were done for the night. Then we get word that a local supermarket in downtown Wilmington had been looted. So I get called back into downtown. I don't see anything there, but my instinct is, where did they go? Mm -hmm. I go to Market Street, which is the big business district in downtown Wilmington, park my station vehicle, walk a block, turned to the left and it looked like a spigot had gone off, like a fire hydrant had exploded. And instead of water, it was shoe boxes going out of a shoe store on Market Street as they had looted into the store and were throwing out merchandise onto the road for people to steal. And that was just the beginning of a very interesting hour. Uh, right, because the the uh, the part that I was, uh, I guess, more alluding to was the fact that you got injured, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, so I see another store get looted. They broke into a T-Mobile using a bicycle and then several rocks and those kind of things. So at that point, I'm thinking, well, I've got this really great Facebook Live going, good coverage. You're seeing what's going on. There was a standoff between the protesters and the police at one point. And then I start working my way south, and I see two more stores, actually two restaurants getting broken into. I get a little too close, and someone who had seen me shooting something else goes snitch. And the next thing I know, someone has come off to the right side where I'm not looking because I'm focused on what's in front of me. And there's a a knuckle in my left eyeball. Well, uh, glad you were okay. I only hope, uh, Sean, that we have more opportunities to talk and that uh, Wesley football and Wesley athletics uh, do not go away here over the course of the next few months. I was going to say, I hope I still have a connection to D3 football come September. Keith, it just really seems unlikely that if indeed another school like Delaware State takes over Wesley, that I don't know whether it's 2020 or somewhere further down the line that that's, uh, you know, that school's athletics gets merged into the main campus and we just simply don't have a Wesley College athletic program anymore. Dell State 
doesn't seem that far from Wesley athletically. And you guys did kind of mention that, uh, that they compete for some of the same players. Um, I wonder if it would be beneficial for, for um, whatever the merged school uh, ends up being called uh, to remain as a, as a D3 athletic program. Um, scholarships are great uh, to dangle for players, but they are costly for athletic programs. And if those athletic programs don't have a huge fan base and nobody's going to have a huge fan base uh, in person this fall, I'd imagine mm-hmm. um, could be a financially prudent decision to, um, to, to, to merge with a D3 school and then remain as a, as a D3 athletic program. So uh, that's my only, besides all the, uh, actually my best friend in high school went to Dell state. And so I've spent time on campus there. It is super close to Wesley. It's uh, not quite a stone's throw, but, um, but yeah, they're like two of the, two of the main things going on in Dover. Sean will tell you besides that, there's a, there's a, a casino and a, a, and a racetrack. Race. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And the air force base. Right. You can see the C-130s. Sometimes when you're broadcasting a game uh, at Wesley, you may see planes flying because uh, it's further off the, off the coast, but um, but you can see them from from the Wesley field. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter and, well, you know, you put out the call for questions, which we do. Uh, around this time every month or you know whenever it is that we are actually doing a podcast and you get you get answers people are eager to talk about football people are eager to ask whether there will be football and you know I think we've talked about the fact that we don't know if we can really answer those questions someone asks when the drop dead date would be I think the you know the the drop dead date to start a season or to declare a season is going to happen actually might be in the middle of the season like we saw with the winter sports you know the NCA had no uh, uh, no hesitation to call things off right either in the middle of our NCA tournament or at uh, before the division one NCA tournament started and I think we're gonna take this particular question which is from David Klein uh, at UD Doolittle Dog, who I think we've had on before, asks, your take on the financial health of D3 football schools and what the division might look like five years from now. We've just finished talking about a school in Wesley, which uh, might end up closing or being absorbed into another school because of financial issues. They basically have been bailed out uh, once already by the state of Delaware and would need more money to operate as a financially, as a as an independent institution in 2020-21. We saw McMurray out of Illinois uh, announce that they were closing down. We are really watching another half dozen schools just in general about financial health, let alone what uh, COVID-19 is doing to schools. Uh, Keith, I really think that uh, there is a... We've talked about conference shuffle in Division Three sports for more than a decade, and we're going to see a, a lot of reshuffling again because I think we're going to we're going to lose schools and we're going to lose athletic departments. Yeah, this conversation is making me feel old because I remember when we were talking about how financially wise it was to add a D three program to a to a college if your college was attracting you know fifty five percent female enrollment or more. You could you could sort of stick a hundred or one hundred and twenty men. Uh, on campus, or you could draw that many men to campus by by opening up football. And we saw really from maybe 2000 or the the 2001, early 2000s to 2010, 12, uh, mm-hmm. a real, you know, we went from 228 to 250. We actually 
hit 250 schools. So D3 was growing for a long time. But I think, um, you know, you go back a couple podcasts where we talked to uh, to Chris Petoskey. Um, and this is, I, I think it's even probably advanced since that discussion where this fall and the, and the year after uh, or the semester after in the spring uh, could be a real financial uh, reckoning. There's that word again for uh, for a lot of colleges, and maybe even you know you rethink what what college is for for a lot of people. You know, do do um, do more people go online than ever? Uh, are sports a um, a priority the way they once were? And I, I think the the biggest difference for D three is that it doesn't depend on on uh, gate receipts for revenue, but it does depend on uh, D one that that March Madness tournament sending 3% of that money 3.4% down our way. And and when you don't have it, like you didn't have it this past spring, um, what does that mean for the future of D3? And, and will we have to become self-sufficient, which is, which would be a significant financial burden. Uh, it could mean a lot for sports certainly. Um, but if we're just talking about schools staying open, that's a completely different uh, animal and, and you probably have to bring Chris back on to talk about that. Yeah, those, uh, you know, those schools that either added football for just enrollment in general, right? Not just to, uh, to, to try to work on your, uh, on your mix of students on campus, but just try to have more, um, you know, whether you added it in the last 20 years to try to do that, or you have it because you're trying to get your campus from 500 students to 600 students, you know, anybody who can't bring a hundred kids to campus in the fall to play football and some of them, like we talked about with Chip Taylor earlier on, if some of them choose not to attend school in the fall, you know, that is a significant uh, hit to the bottom line or the top line for uh, lots of institutions around the country. So that is still one thing that could happen before September 1. Who knows how many Division Three football programs will take the field? Boy, lots of things we don't know. But we will... Keep at it. And, uh, you know, when we know the things, we'll share them with you either on this podcast or on the front page of D3Football.com or on Twitter. You can follow me at, at D3Football. You can follow Keith at D3Keith. Uh, you can use the D3FB hashtag to follow more conversation about Division Three football as well. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. And you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. So this was Around the Nation podcast number 275, released on June 26th of 2020. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it. You can do that in Apple Podcasts. You can do that in Stitcher. You can do it in, you know, Spotify. You can do it in all sorts of places, iHeart, whatever. Uh, you can do that. Please leave us a, a rating. That'll help other football fans and the like find it. Uh, the executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos. And you can find him at DJMentos.com. You can also find him on Spotify. DJ Mentos. And, uh, you know, if you like the music, the theme music for the pod, he, uh, he is part of a group called Analog Suspects, who has put out some music uh, recently, but uh, just put out a video this week. Uh, for a song called Savage, which deals with uh, the moment that um, that we're living in. It was filmed in Richmond, Virginia. 
um, at some of the protests around the Confederate monuments. So, uh, so go online, check that out. Uh, Cheats Movement is the is the website. Analog Suspects is the group, and DJ Mentos is the person who has been so kind uh, to let us use uh, his music for the uh, for the pod for so many years. So. Uh, appreciate you guys trying to check them out yeah you can find a link to that video we'll include it in the uh, show notes for this on the blog page uh, because that's another place where you can uh, talk about uh, this podcast as well i want to thank our guests we want to thank uh, chip taylor the head coach at hamlin and then we want to thank you know uh, we want to thank nick hayes of Millsaps, malcolm lang of wabash devin smith of Cortland. i want to thank also uh, you know, Coach Isaac Carter at Millsaps for helping us, uh, you know, get things hooked up. Greg Thomas, our colleague, uh, along with uh, Coach Morell at uh, Wabash, for helping us get in touch with Malcolm, uh, Fran Ilya, the SID at Cortland, and then I also want to thank uh, Gary Holden at, at Ferrum for his help uh, trying to get this podcast put together as well. And then, of course, I have to thank uh, the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. I am extending out the music bed here, the, the DJ Mentos music bed, quite a bit underneath the uh, credits here in this podcast. So we're still in the off season. Boy, here's hoping that the off season ends come September 5 when we're supposed to have football. Uh, but you can still find new content from us on a regular basis, and you can uh, continue to find new podcasts in this feed. This is a double. It wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't do one in May. This is the May and June podcast, and there you go. That's why it's that long. That's totally the reason. I agree. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.